Welcome to Gleaming the Tube, the podcast where Kevin and Mike watch a film in which somebody rides a skateboard at some point. Finally, a podcast where people talk about movies. Hello, Michael. Hello, Kevin. 1989's Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure tells the story of two high school students who need to pass their high school history presentation in order to remain together and ultimately save the future. And uh, given the expansive time that this film covers, we thought we would bring in a guest to help us unpack Bill and Ted. So please welcome Sean Rosato. Station. Greetings, my excellent friends. Sean is someone I know through Dragon Con's American Sci-Fi Classics track. And uh, Sean, if you want to tell the viewers a little bit about your other projects that you've got. Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, well, the, the big thing that I talk about these days is uh, my wife and I uh, have a booth that we go around to different conventions. We call it Pop Cycle Bobbles. We create a bunch of handmade art from recycled artwork. Uh, and we also make a bunch of stuff ourselves, such as uh, 8-bit pixel statues. And we make these amazing one-of-a-kind clocks, all kinds of cool stuff like that. And uh, the fun part about our, our our shtick is that we never sell online. You can only find us at conventions. So if this is a great advertisement. If you're going to be at Dragon Con, we'll be there too. And you can come see us in uh, 2022. Um, but uh, other than that, I love hanging out on other people's podcasts. Um, back in the Stone Age, I had my own for like eight years called Sean Castic that I just did with my buddies all the time. But uh, my buddy Nathan then spun that off and did something called the 42 cast. So if you like the kind of content that I bring here, go check out his stuff and check out uh, me and Kevin over at uh, American Sci-Fi Classics because we're on there all the time. Because <laughs> uh, what was the, um, what was it? The, the Battle of the Imaginary Bands? Wasn't that what it was called? Yes, we spent a month doing a March Madness style yeah. bracket battle of fictional bands, which is actually why you're on this because you were so passionate about the Wild Stallions. Yes. When we came up with doing this movie for the podcast, I was like, I should get Sean on. I, I love it. I was so excited because you just dropped it by my, my inbox like, hey, do you want to talk about Bill and Ted? I'm like, when don't I want to talk about Bill and Ted? So I was at a, that was the easiest yes ever. So. Thank you for having me. It's it's perfect because uh, from my end of the deal, there's only about one second of actual skateboarding in this movie, so I don't have I, I, my my I'm on super light duty tonight. But I will 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 stretch it out with talk of terrible guitars and right and uh, yeah and wild stallions. In fairness, that skateboarding is done by Genghis Khan himself. It's true. I mean, you you have Mongolian like like what what one thousand AD you know, skateboarding. I mean, like if you're going to go hardcore, that's about as hardcore as you can go. He was re-upping his, uh, his equipment and, uh, yeah. and a four, and a four-wheeled, uh, uh, a, a four-wheeled means of conveyance seemed to, uh, seemed to speak to him. So I think that's pretty great. He's like a reverse Marty McFly. Yes. <laughs> Honestly, if he had found out about dune buggies, I think we would have been in for a world of hurt. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Yeah, I mean, like, sure. can you imagine yeah. Genghis Khan on a dune buggy? Like, uh, I mean, I can see it, like, in my head very clearly. Napoleon alone had those water slides that he was going to bring. For the most part, the uh, the, the the conqueror um, section of the of the of the personalities that they collected were pretty docile in the in the in the future. 
But uh, once once Genghis Khan got his hands on a, an aluminum baseball bat, it was it was it was time to go for yeah. it. Yeah, it was funny. Billy the Kid, the guy who wants to rob everything, was just basically trolling the food court for babes. I mean, that I loved the sequence with him and Socrates trying to trying to trying to pick up girls, and, and then and then uh, Freud comes in and blows it for the. You may call me fantastic. Ziggy. Ziggy, <laughs> like just it's terrible. But but one thing I wanted to say, Mike, I I assume since you were talking about the skateboarding, you're you're the skateboarding aficionado of the two yes okay i have been giving kevin like all the props every single time i'm on a panel with him i'm like what are you talking about this week on the pod like i'm like i need to know this because when he told me the concept of this podcast i was like this is the most amazing idea ever if there's a skateboard we talk about it i'm like oh my god it's a niche yeah and the and the, the fun thing is is that the movies we've we've discovered the the the, uh, the the discoverable piece of data that we've figured out now. However many episodes we've done so far is that the more skateboarding involved in the movie, the worse the movie usually is. Like if it's Ooh. other than mid nineties, which which managed to be a movie about skateboarding, but also a well written and heartfelt uh, film about coming of age in in nineties LA which featured a lot of skateboarding. If it's a movie about skateboarding, right? It's you can bet that it is a difficult watch <laughs> that, that uh featuring many unlikable characters in scenarios where you don't care whether they overcome their hardships or not. And yeah. the less skateboarding uh, it, it doesn't leave me with much to talk about, but usually that's a higher quality film. We did Nightmare on Elm Street 5, which contains one minute of Freddy skateboarding, but oh man, what a fantastic film. So yeah, that's the over and under is usually the less skateboarding there is, the better quality the film is. So Yeah, I, I'm sitting here thinking about it now and I'm going through your litmus in my head. I'm thinking of all the skateboarding movies I can that are heavy skateboarding. I'm like, yeah, like these these have not aged well. Like they were great when I was like ten, right? Like right, they're yeah. perfect ten year old fodder. But the, but as soon as you age out of that, as far as like you like you want more sophisticated storytelling, yeah, I, I damn it, I think you're right. Like I don't. <laughs> it's sort of like it's sort of like watching Eight Mile. You okay. watch Eight Mile because you wanted to get to the rapping. Mm-hmm. And the rapping sequences in Eight Mile are are awesome. All of the rap battles that he does, or any moment where where uh, Eminem as Buddy Rabbit and his friends are getting together to just kind of talk shit and rap, uh, is great cinema. Right. The rest of the story is usually sort of propped up on these on these ways in which the the subcultural thing that they're that they're leaning on isn't normally presented in real life. So. With skateboarding movies, it always comes down to this big competition <laughs> that somebody's got to win. Where in 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 the normal sphere of skateboarding, competition skateboarding or one crazy trick that's going to change your life isn't really the, the 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 metric that you use to measure, you know, the, the skateboarding. So it's like it's always retrofit from thrashing to grind those movies are all based on this they're all based on this like we've got to win the big competition to get sponsored and that usually means that the skateboarding in the movie is usually pretty great right they bring in all the right pros to do all the right moves and it's you know even if they're a little dated it's fun to watch but it doesn't relate to skateboarding as it yeah. actually exists on on the real planet Earth, so it's it's always fun to watch that kind of wrinkle. 
The documentaries are kind of a different story. Yes. Like Dogtown and Z Boys is fantastic. Oh, amazing. Oh, Dogtown's actually really good. Yeah, that's yeah. a really good one. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, anytime you're watching the real thing happen, mm-hmm. that's that's why, as far as I'm concerned, the 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 ultimate movie we've watched so far on this for this podcast has got to be Police Academy. <laughs> because <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Why Police Academy? Because, why? why? Well, Police Academy Four. Police Academy Four. I'm sorry. Okay. Because okay. there is there is a sequence of skateboarding in Police Academy Four. Right. Featuring the Bones Brigade from, I believe it was like 1985. Mm -hmm. That was some of the very first real skateboarding action Mm -hmm. that a people people of a certain age got to see, and it pulled the veil. We were we talk about it on on that episode where a lot of the images that you were seeing were either photographs in a magazine. Or, you know, again, like some little moment of skateboarding from the 70s. Right. You know, from and, and so when we got to see Tommy Guerrero and Tony Hawk and those guys actually skateboarding through the streets, there's this there's a little moment where Tommy Guerrero does an Ollie up a like a little set of two stairs. Right. And I that I think I probably rented that movie. 700 times just for that little two minute sequence wow and it was like the big that was the big the big moment for all of us so that's why that movie i mean i remember announcing we were doing this podcast and i think almost 90 percent of the people who responded to it said you gotta do police academy four i'm serious because you're, you're right i mean and, and uh this also still ties into bill and ted because we're talking about past deeds so really oh, yeah. what we're doing is we're just we're going some time traveling for you guys because i've been wanting to talk about the concept of this podcast for like basically since i met kevin so forgive the tangent but i needed that's to get right. this out of my system but yeah police academy you're right i mean seeing actual skateboarding maneuvers in motion at a protracted duration of time yeah i mean that you're right i I think that is yeah there were skateboarding videos that you could that you could find or rent but they were few and far between right but a habit beamed you know i i i recall going to see police academy before with my family and seeing that skateboarding sequence and just practically running out of the theater insisting you know i was like well i've got to figure all this out now you know that's that's why that that one remains the big one um and that is the most downloaded episode of the show rightfully so i mean that yeah (laughs) yeah bill and ted on the other hand one moment of genghis khan riding uh, uh a gator vision gator mark anthony board through a shopping mall having said that though this movie is fantastic it's amazing. Such a good movie. What a joy. I uh I was watching it again. You know, I watched it actually pretty recently, a few months ago, and I decided to watch it again today to be really freshened up for the podcast. And I it 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 really is one of those movies that other than a couple of little moments that made me cringe just a little bit as far as just outdated uh subject matter, the movie fully holds up. And I think it's because it's not done with a trace of irony. No. Like I feel like the characters are are involved and invested in the story, and it's it's such a pleasure to watch. It's extremely earnest. Um, I think when you look at the Bill and Ted movies, all of them, all three, the the thing that comes through all three of these films, especially the first one, is Bill and Ted are truly earnest nice likable characters that don't have a mean bone in their body all they want they're just they're 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 just joys to be around 
you know, and, and, right. and that's something that is so rare, not only in, I mean, because comedy is usually built on, you know, antagonism is usually built on conflict, uh, it's usually built on some kind of dynamic where there's a lot of friction and Bill and Ted's friction is external to them. It is not them. You know, even when they have arguments with each other, it's like three seconds long, you know, and then Bill thinks that a uh, 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 Ted has been stabbed by a knight and he's like, don't be dead, dude, you know, and, and yeah, you yeah. know, and like it's immediately all is forgiven. Right. And, and, and that's what I love about these guys. Um, and I, I love about the, this journey that they go on, because the, the ultimate message of this uh, and and Kevin knows this and, and you'll come to find out is I'm an eternal optimist. I believe that we always have better days ahead of us than behind us, that we always have things that we can strive for and we always have the capability and the capacity to do good things, which is why when we see things that shake us to our core, be it unrest in the world, violence, whatever, that's why it becomes quote unquote news. It's because we know in our hearts, we are better creatures than this, but yet we don't really celebrate that. In our media, we celebrate the worst of ourselves. And, you know, we watch movies, diehard, so on and so forth. It's usually violent movies, violent sci-fi, how things are bad. And here comes Bill and Ted with George Carlin of all people, yeah, man. Right? <laughs> saying the future's great and we figured it out and it's because of these two guys and it's because of music how can you not love that right your song aligned the planets i always i always think about that and think like well that's an enormous amount of pressure for the two uh for the two titular characters yeah. but what a fun journey it is to watch them to, to, to go to on. Yeah. And, and to see that first Great. step is it, it, just so amazing. And if you've seen, but spoilers for anybody who's not seen the third movie, Bill and Ted face the music. The whole point of that is they've been trying to figure out the song for 30 something years and it's almost too late and they don't know if they can do it. And then it builds up to the crescendo and in good Bill and Ted fashion, there's a very satisfying ending. And it, it's, it, it, I mean, it honest to God, it made me cry because I was like, this is the ending that I wanted for these guys. I really, I watched the newer one almost, I think it was available, I think maybe HBO Max or wherever it was available right when it came out because it didn't, it didn't have a theatrical release. And I, you know, it's, we, I, I think about this a lot about the idea of like rebooting a story many, many years later or a, or a, or a, a sequel that happens many years later. And that, you know, the danger is always, I think, going to re, sort of be able to recapture the, the magic. And I think, especially in the case of the, the most recent Bill and Ted movie, I like that they, that it almost felt like it, they needed to wait as long as they did for the story to sort of come to them, which was, it's not just the two of you. It's like this, this, this like melting pot of different styles and of different, of different genres. Or, and that's, and so it, but, you know, I, I like the idea of sort of mining a, a, a bigger meaning from what at the what in the beginning was probably just sort of a one note joke, which is these two idiots write a song that saves the world. But then but then all these years later, it's like, oh, it was us all along. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought that was very satisfying. I'll I'll, sp- I'll spoil the ending of the new one. And I love the fact that the movie simultaneously ends with it's not that the song is great. It's that everyone throughout time and history is playing it together. Yes. Fantastic. And I love that. I love, I love the notion of um, these characters kind of getting redeemed through their children. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the way they play it as, as these two guys who sort of like they're bonded eternally over this, this responsibility to save the world, but it, it also turns them into that very effective 
people. <laughs> you know, like they, they the scene where they're at marriage counseling together. And they oh God, it was so funny. Like, it was so funny. Like I love the idea of sort of like going back and looking at the story as a writer and a, and a producer of the movie later on and be like, oh, these guys are like useless yeah. <laughs> without without each other. Yeah, it was fantastic. I loved how when they were playing the wedding at the beginning of the new one, they're not still trying to be a Van Halen clone band. They're like, here are some like tones from the didgeridoo. I like, I love that Ted's playing the theremin. Yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Uh, was Alex Winter more involved in the creative process for the second one? I'm not sure. Um, now I do know that Alex Winter after Bill and Ted too, um, and in the later nineties and in the two thousands has become a producer and a movie maker of his own right quite sure. successfully. So I know his voice has become more pronounced, whereas Keanu Reeves has become obviously a consummate actor that people just, they can't get enough of really uh, uh, Alex Winter has found his voice behind the camera. Right. Um, I think that started to happen in part two, but I know definitely he had influence in part three. All three movies were written by Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon. And apparently on the first movie, Matheson, Solomon, Winter, and Reeves, like, all became very close friends, like, Mm -hmm. through this day, which is why they wanted to make a third movie, because they, there was the, the world was not clamoring for that movie. I was, I was, when they announced it, I was there, I was like, gimme. But they wanted to do it, and it wasn't until um, Keanu Reeves sort of had another one of his career resurgences after John Wick that the studios funded it, but they'd been trying to make it since... 2010 or so. The only reason I ask about Bogus Journey is because stylistically that movie is when you watch it, it's way more off the wall and way, it, it almost has like a, a almost like a Pee Wee's Big Adventure kind of a feel to it where it gets, it gets very surreal when they're in that weird nether world of you know the the dream sequence where he's at the police uh, the, the the military academy and everything and yeah everything feels very oh yeah uh, when they're in hell yeah yeah Tim yeah. Burton esque and I and that seems to dovetail a little bit more into Alex Winter's uh, filmmaking style. I remember I've watched Freaked and, and 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 that reminded me a lot of the second Bill and Ted. I was like oh okay there's a lot oh, yeah, of things kind great, of yeah. a lot more at the wall in that one but yeah. Yeah, one thing I think is interesting that they've talked about, the creators said that when they went to go do part two, they said, we've gone through time and space. Like, where do we go? We we gave, like, they're like, it's like Doctor Who. Like, once you know you can go at any point in time on Earth's history, where do you go for a sequel? And they're like, the afterlife. Let's let's really, yeah, let's go to hell. Let's go to heaven. You know, let's see what happens. And it's like, but when we know these people are the saviors (laughs) of humanity, how do we get there? So they basically said, we want to get them to hell. How do we get them to hell? And they basically worked backwards from what I understand from that point. So I, I distinctly remember an interview with both Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter, probably on MTV or something where apparently the, the original working title of the second one was Bill and Ted go to hell. Right. And uh, there were some, you know, I, I, maybe some church groups or whoever had a problem with that title. And they, and, and they, you know, I remember the, the person interviewing them was like, so, you know, how do you feel about, how do you justify changing the name of the movie? And I, I remember Alex Winter saying, well, it's, it's honestly, it's not a, it's not a, a, a really accurate. I mean, we only spend a little bit of the movie in hell C- calling the movie Bill and Ted go to hell would be like calling the first one, Bill and Ted go to the circle K. And I thought that was such a fantastic answer to that question. The, the teenage me was like, 
nice <laughs> well done my friend it is you know and honestly we always have to remember the fact that the the first two movies are specifically aimed at teenagers and and slightly older children you know like 9 10 11 you know that tween age right so it really makes sense to make sure that you're not going to alienate that audience and if the parents right. are not going to let them go to bill and ted go to hell but they'll let them go to bogus journey get them in the door and i think that's also why maybe some of that tim burtony influence might have melted into the second one because we're talking about a dark idea. I mean, they met literally the Lord of Hell. They met Satan in his backyard. And not only did they have the chutzpah to play it serious, where they're like, you know, no, they're really in hell. They're like, also, they're going to basically give them, you know, the sign of the devil, right? Like, yo, Satan, what's up? You rock. <laughs> I mean, like, what? Like, I mean, Fantastic. so you have to kind of go that that extra. Otherwise, you know, like parents might take this seriously, you know, even though in their world, this is legitimately serious, like they were really in hell. Um, and then, of course, you get the flip side, which is they go to heaven. And I'm sorry, guys, I know we're jumping around like all the Bill and Ted movies. But if you've not seen Bogus Journey, you have to watch it when death has to apologize to God. <laughs> for, for basically losing to Bill and Ted after playing a round robin of games. And he's like, they melvined me. You know, he's just all upset. The footage of de- them playing death and eventually they get to Twister. God damn it. That's funny. <laughs> One of my favorite things about these movies is that they're simultaneously really dumb and really smart. Like they can have, they can have a Melvin joke soup, like in the middle of an Ingmar Bergman hom- homage. <laughs> Absolutely. Those, those outfits like were dead on. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the feeling you get. Like, again, I just watched the original one today and I, I, I got the feeling like it was like th- that it was like a it was one of those movies that the people who made the movie cared about the movie and wanted it to be good and interesting and considered that the scene that where Napoleon is just enjoying the hell out of himself at the water park. I mean, yes. come on. That's so fun to watch him like running around and jumping with the kids and, and, and just having a great time. And then he doesn't want to leave. Fantastic. I love and I love that, that he's like uh, under all that outfit, he's just got this one long Mumu smock thing. Yeah. He's like, he wears, like, he's like, got a 1920s <laughs> bathing suit. Like, what was with that <laughs> I know, like, what was that? Like, did he get it from the lost and found? Did he have that tucked down his pants? I think that was his underclothes. That's like his, like, yeah, like, that's just Napoleon's undergarments. Like, that that scene was so freaking funny. Just him, like, him discovering water slides is, again, it's a joyful moment, you know? It's a true moment of joy where he goes from complete terror to this is the best day of my life. Yeah. And I'm, I, and I'm never going to forget it. And I'm never going to forget it, you know, but that, that is the beauty of the Bill and Ted uh, movies. And again, excellent adventure does a great job. There's something about we're making a movie and we're going to take it seriously, but we're not going to take it so seriously that we can't put in an insane idea. Like, the idea that um, all you have to do to get Genghis Khan to go into a, a, a phone booth is to give him a Twinkie. Who doesn't want a Twinkie? Right. I mean, literally, like, first off, we know that Genghis Khan was a glutton and a hedonist in all terms. He loved violence. He loved sex. He loved food. So they're like, we know we can get him with food. But what kind of food can we give him that he has never had before? And they're like, want a Twinkie? And what kind of food would Bill or Ted just happen to have yes. in their pocket? They were just at the Circle K. <laughs> I can tell you guys that on a personal note, uh, in the last few months, I moved from uh, Rhode Island to the uh, L.A. area, and the f- the first place that I landed was a little town called San Dimas, California, which is where I stayed until very recently. I just moved to Pasadena, but I can tell you that the disappointment in finding out that none of the filming 
from the movie Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure took place anywhere fucking near San Dimas, California was a huge letdown. Because I will say this to anyone of a certain age or disposition who asked me, oh, where are you living in California? If I responded San Dimas, California, you can bet your bottom dollar that they responded immediately with San Dimas. High school football rules. San Dimas high school football rules. I, I thought you were going to say it It disappointed me that they don't have a high school football team. <laughs> they, they, well, so the thing is, the one place where this dovetails between our sort of interests in this podcast is that while, like I said, I arrived in San Dimas, saw Circle K, and thought, that's got to be the one. Nope, that was in like Scarsdale, Arizona. Drove by San Dimas High School, and realized that that's not the high school that they film at, film at at all. But San Dimas High School is the location of a very, very, very famous skateboarding obstacle in real life called the San Dimas Gap, which is like an embankment with a curb at the top and then like a very wide driveway and then another curb that people literally get towed in. It's, it's in the basketball courts. And I immediately went to visit it. It's a place you can find uh, images on YouTube of skate professional skateboarders getting towed in by like cars or motorcycles across the, the basketball courts up the, the embankment. And then they do tricks across the, the gap. And so it was interesting to, to be in San Dimas, find out that none of Bill and Ted were filmed in San Dimas, but the actual San Dimas high school while it maybe their football does not rule a very, very well-known skateboarding uh, uh, landmark was like five minutes away from my house. So I certainly went and looked at that and marveled at it for, for, well, I gotta say, Mike, that was like expert top tier level of segueing the, the skateboarding aspect of the show back into a very light skateboarding episode. So that was masterfully done, sir. We work with what we can work with here. That was, that was... Um, but you know, what's funny. The thing that just shook me when you mentioned that you lived in San Dimas for a while was I legitimately thought San Dimas wasn't a real place. Real place. I assumed it was a made up city. Yeah. Well, and the, fu- and the funny thing is, is that it's, I think it was chosen name wise because it really is when I got there, it really is like the perfectly as much as, Ridgemont would be at Fast Times at Ridgemont High. It's this mm-hmm. perfect suburb of LA, kind of flat, uh, almost like like uh, like suburban desert. Basically, mm-hmm. uh, the the funny thing about it is that a lot of things that are mentioned in Sandy in the movie exist in the real San Dimas. It's just that it wasn't filmed there. For example, Waterloo. It just didn't look good enough for them. Yeah, like wa- Waterloo <laughs> is is um Knott's Berry Farm. There's a there's a there's a or okay. at a water park right at Knott's Berry Farm that's right in with I believe in the city limits of San Dimas, but really? they didn't film the Waterloo sequences there. San Dimas High School is if you've ever seen any of those prototypical LA high schools where all the buildings face outward and all the lockers face outward, you know, you, uh-huh. you, you, you know, think just one of the guys or Fast Times or Joe and I or any of those movies. If you go to San Dimas High School, that's exactly what it looks like. And yet it was 
replaced with a high, with a high school in Arizona. I'm sure because there was a massive tax break or, you know. Oh, absolutely. You know, but it, it's just funny to, that, yeah, you drive into San Dimas, one of the first things you see is a Circle K. And you think, okay, well, he, that no, that's not, it's 500 miles from that Circle K. Well, that, that's a bummer. But, you know, it's funny. Like, um, I recently found out uh, another Alex Winter movie, the city that they filmed in, uh, uh, Santa Carla for Lost Boys, was a real place. Yes. I thought Santa Carla was a made-up place. I'm like, who would ever be okay with having their name associated with the Myrtle capital of the world until I found out about the backstory to Santa Carla? And I was like, oh, I was like, that's actually like a thing. I didn't know. Like that was like a nickname it had gotten. Yeah. And they weren't happy about it. You know, so now I've learned today. I'm today's years old when I found out that San Dimas is real. So places that I assumed weren't real are real. And places I assumed were real, like Sherman, Illinois, from like, you know, the John Hughes movies I found out a long time ago were not. So basically my entire childhood was a lie. I did not know up from down is what you're telling me. It's uh it has a lot to do with movie magic, I suppose. It's you know, if you you wanted to believe it and yet it was not true. But yeah, I I I I will say it was a it was a kick to find myself living. I only lived there for a couple of months, but to be living in San Dimas. It was fantastic. In my head I was still like, oh that's where you know that's that's where they hang out <laughs> so mike you mentioned fast times and one thing that really struck me yes. re-watching bill and ted this go round was how close the two characters are to spicoli from fast times yes yeah i'm curious how deliberate that was i feel like they're almost like as if if spicoli if there was a cartoon version of, of of an already cartoonish la surfer character i think spicoli I think Bill and Ted are the cartoon versions of Spicoli. They're almost, they're even more dis, dis, uh, disassociated from the reality in which they live in. Yeah. Uh, I don't think Bill and Ted would have it in them to like steal the quarterback's car and then pretend to crash it. They'd just be like, no, let's, you know, we can't do that, man. <laughs> but yeah, I think you're right. I think if you're, if, if you're looking for a baseline of Bill and Ted, I think that the place they started from was almost certainly Spicoli. Well, I, I think there's also something to be said for the fact that Spicoli was an observed like archetype that was occurring in the California scene at that time. Right. And so they basically, you know, they crystallized it and homogenized it down to what became Spicoli. And then that became so popular. There's like a second generation version of that because it then went back into the ecosystem and people who saw fast times who were living in that area and saw other people kind of became this, but like it became the norm kind of like the Valley girl talk. That sure. was not normal. And it became the normal cadence. Like today we have the, what, what do they call it? Crisping. Crisping was not a thing. It went out into the world because somebody did it. And then it kind of comes back. And now uh, all the uh, all the, the the girls who are like influencers and whatnot, they have a certain cadence to the way they, they, they speak, kind of like a Kim Kardashian. So it, it's this interesting phenomenon. And I think Bill and Ted are, uh, again, a distillation of something that's already been distilled and then kind of fed back into the ecosystem. Um, and, and it's just an observed thing that became accepted. Right. This is how California because, dudes talk, right? So we, we, yeah, this is how if, California If you have a couple talk, of dudes yeah. that talk like that, you'll know exactly where they're from because you've seen fast times at Ridgemont high. And so, you know, you right. know, kind of what they're, yeah, that, that plays for me. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, what's funny though, is I think probably one of the greatest performances of all time, and it's almost a skateboarding reference, but there's unfortunately no wheels on their boards is point break where Keanu Reeves has to try to play like he's a surfer guy. So he gets to pull out his Ted 
but not actually be Ted in that movie. And it's fantastic because you probably hear what a real California would sound like for them. But then you get to see his affected version, which is the Ted version. And I love that about that movie, it, right? It's so. funny that you point that out. I had never really thought about that before, but I can only imagine that there was a couple of moments where Keanu went a little too far into Bill and Ted and, and, and Catherine Bigelow was like, hey, man. Yeah, pump, pump the brakes a little bit. You're you're you've moved a little too far into into the tent. Like you, you, we want you to be aware that there is a villain Ted, but it's not you. And if Kriana has been like, yeah, but it was me. Like, <laughs> right? But no. But then she turns. She takes him to the side, and she's like, "Do you see that guy over there? That's Gary fucking yeah. Busey. Okay, look, look who you're with. That that right there is Patrick Swayze. Okay, nobody disrespects that guy dance. over there. You know, so that, I, that's Anthony Kiedis. You're gonna really want to rein it in when Kiedis right, is oh, on yeah, the scene. You know. <laughs> Kiedis will will jack you up because well actually I think at that point Kiedis was clean so I think Kiedis had already kicked his habits at that point probably so, but still he caught he came from a rough and tumble neighborhood I mean even though you're clean you can still brawl to to the bone so especially I mean, if you're being a cartoonish version of the of the California dude I suppose I was really impressed too watching like Keanu Reeves performance in this where he basically plays Ted like a puppy dog they're they're nice people yeah I mean, Bill is a little bit more grounded. Bill has, I don't want to say more nuance, but he has more highs and lows. Like, you know, he can actually get pissed off and he can actually be very happy. Mm -hmm. But I mean, again, on a sliding scale of normal humans, he's still very positive. But Ted, exactly, Kevin, he, he plays like a puppy dog. When they're walking down after Bill knows that his dad is boinking the girl of his dreams in his bedroom. Like it, all he needs to do is swap out himself or his dad. And he's living like his, his wildest wet dream. Right. But he can't because that's not what's happening. And Ted is making fun of him a little bit. Like, Oh my God, I can't believe this is happening in your bedroom right now. And he's like, shut up, Ted. And then Keanu Reeves could take that and become sad. But instead he's like, I'm a dumb puppy dog. I'm just going to smile because nothing can hurt my heart because we don't deserve dogs. It's true. And we don't really deserve Keanu. We don't. We don't deserve Keanu Reeves. We certainly don't deserve Ted, you know, and, and, and but that's how he played it. It's so it's so perfect. But he also it, it, he is the one that points out uh, towards the end of the movie that it's possible that learning to play their instruments might be the next logical step in uh, saving the world. Um to the to to my which is one of my favorite moments in the movie when George Carlin Rufus present, presents them with the tools in which they will they will use to uh to write the song that saves the world and it's the two shittiest guitars that you can that i think they're free burgers i think that's what they're called that brand of guitar without the headstock i'm sure there's a guitar nerd listening that's gonna that's gonna correct me i believe they're called free burgers or fry burgers but when he presents them because they've got perfectly serviceable guitars yeah they have very he, nice guitars and yeah. then he presents them with those two absolutely shitty useless a tonal guitars like here you go guys and i was just wondering like thanks rufus i i've got a, a pretty nice uh I, I believe one of them is is playing a telecaster it's like this is a pretty sweet telly in and of itself so so i guess maybe this free burger will just sort of lean against the drum set for <laughs> for the rest of our musical career maybe it was like a future free burger maybe it had like a a a super like it never gets out of tune because they a need the help free burger. right exactly. like i don't know in the future the free burger is the I I wish I I wish I had actually looked up the name of that guitar because now suddenly Freeburger definitely does not sound like the right thing. But I won't correct it because I I can't wait for the for the music nerds who may or may not listen to this podcast to get very upset with me. I also I remember as a little kid watching the movie and being 
kind of a, a, a sort of surprised. So when you grow up on the East Coast or anywhere other than California and you're interested in skateboarding, you tend to think of California yeah. as this sort of magical place where magical things happen on skateboards. And in a lot of ways, it is like you. The first thing you notice when you move out here is the quality of the ground is a lot smoother. And you notice that there are lots of uh, sort of like man-made obstacles that are not intended for skateboarding that seem like they're absolutely intended for skateboarding, like embankments and, and these things. But one of the other things that stuck with me was the idea that that Genghis Khan was able to find like a professional level skateboard, which is the, the Vision Gator, just in a fucking shopping mall. I remember being a little kid and be like, if you go to a shopping mall around here, you could only find like, you know, like the, the sort of the store brands like Veriflex and Nash. And that's why it actually made me, it kind of made me giggle that in their practice space at the end of the movie, there is a, a, a Nash heat zone board leaning against the wall, which is exactly the the kind of department store quality skateboard that you would you would have access to if you weren't necessarily a real skateboard enthusiast. So it kind of right. tied that bow for me. I was like, all right, they've, 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 they've rightened my indignation as a little kid that, that you could just walk into a fucking mall and buy a vision board that, that, that was not possible in 1988. That's for sure. Yeah. No, but I mean, but the flip side of that is just think about it. The, the, the guy who was doing the stunt for Genghis Khan absolutely would not ride on a POS like that. He was like, no, I am bringing my badass board. Right. We are not going to have this store-bought board. We're going to have my most excellent board in order to do this stunt, even though it is anachronistic of the area. Or or the guy who owned Vision, who was a, 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 a certainly a, a marketing genius himself, was like, if there's going to be he, – he, I'm sure he had like a direct line. If there's going to be a skateboard on screen, right. let's make it – because because that's the, the, the funny thing. When, when I first started skateboarding, there were these these – decks and these images on the bottom of decks that didn't change out like now that there's new board series every couple of weeks from companies that have to keep changing their graphics to keep you know to 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 keep people buying boards but at that time there were 20 pros and they had one graphic for their board that they stayed with for five or so the vision gator board the reason that it's so you know, ubiquitous in movies of a certain time is because they, 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 I mean, think about the idea that Gator, if you watch the documentary about Gator, which we covered on this podcast, and you look at the house that that dude bought himself from board sales. I mean, these dudes were living like rock stars and it was because the same board was available for five years at a time. And they were selling thousands and thousands of them. So that's why those boards are always, it's that one. And there's one that looks like a kind of an evil face kind of, and then there's the vision psycho stick that ended up on the cover of in kick album. Those are like the big right. three that you, I, I don't think like you, I think if you were a kid in the in like the mid to late eighties, those boards were just, you just found them in your garage. They were just like, they, they just, yeah, they came with the house and, and that's, that's yeah, well, I mean, I, I mean, I saw almost all all the skateboards I saw were basically in, in comic book ads. You know, like I'd be reading a comic book and then boom, there'd be a skateboard ad. I'm like, oh, oh check yeah. that out, you know. And I would see those over and over and over again because you're right, they didn't, especially in the '80s, that did not change very quickly. That was that they, they that was your. I mean, the Tony Hawk, the classic Tony Hawk yep. graphic, that was his graphic for probably. You know, it's funny. I was about to say ten years, but now I think about it, it's probably only five. But it seemed like a long time to me because I was well. When you're a kid, 13, five years is basically so yeah, ten. So five yeah. years is your entire life, exactly. Yeah, 
<laughs> it is. But, you know, the thing that I love about that is there is something that 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 roots, you know, not not only, you know, the, the skateboards, but also this movie in that time. You, you watch these and they're wonderful time capsules. And, and when you're dealing with a movie like a Bill and Ted movie where you're going all around time, it doesn't matter that this movie is 35, 40 years old. You know, uh, you, you could still watch it and say, OK, this is meant to be in this particular moment. And, and I love finding those artifacts. I love watching Bill and Ted and saying, oh, my God, like I remember that brand of cereal you know like oh, oh my yeah, god yeah. I, I i know that poster on that wall oh i know that kind of music that they're playing in the background like remember when joan of arc uh, decides to go jazzercising in the middle of the freaking mall like you don't do that anymore like you didn't do that like in 1990 much less you know in the year 2022 you know so like it's just it's insane you know i love that and i do want to i do want to give a shout out to my beloved jane weedland in the role of Joan of Arc. <laughs> yes. Man, is she a cutie in this movie. Absolutely. That, that's interesting, Kevin, because I, I remember when I decided to sit down and watch the movie a couple of months ago, I remember thinking to myself, is that Jane Weedland? And then never following up on that at all. It's, and then thought it again today. I was like, oh, that, it seems like that it, it's like they could have gotten Jane Weedland to play that role. And the fact that that is actually her, which I just d- didn't do my due diligence in researching it. I'm glad that at least I can recognize a Jane Weedland when I see one, even though I didn't actually know it was her. Yeah. yeah. Out in the wild, you know, just was that a Jane Weedland? Yes, it was. And in the yeah, late so. 80s, Jane Weedland like did not appear in a ton of movies, but she, like she made the most of her small parts. Cause she's also in clue as the singing telegram. Right. And get shot dead. Right. Yes. The- <laughs> it's fantastic. I did not know that. Well, I, I think, the thing they did that was really great with, with with her was the fact that when you look at, I mean, all the actors, they, they really did a great job trying to find people that kind of fit, fit the stereotype. But with, with Jane Winglet, you're also looking at somebody who is primarily a musician. She was not known for her acting chops, right? So you're talking about, she was the Go-Go's, not the Bengals, right? The Go-Go's, yeah. The Go-Go's, okay. I don't, I don't want to commit blasphemy. So, but, you know, so you're known as, as, as more of a musician than anything else. And they're like, well, how can we get like this great sprite woman? Because I mean, she, she She's, you know, a little pixie sprite, you know, it just, just, you know, you're like, we love this woman. We want to bring her into this movie. You know, Joan of Arc, she doesn't really have to say anything. I mean, she has like, I think three lines in French. Yes. And that's right. It. she doesn't, there's not a lot of dialogue. For no. Jane. It's also, all she really has to do is emote with her face, you know? Yeah. And I mean, not to be, you know, too specific, but you know, if you're a rock star and especially if you're, you know, a, a guitar player and you're on a stage, you have to emote to an audience to kind of, you know, kind of, you know, connect with them. So don't talk, just emote. She was perfect for this role, you know, perfect. and she killed it. She crushed it. But moving on from Joan of Arc though, um, something I, we, I, we had to talk about is, you know, when you look at Bill and Ted, especially Excellent Adventure, the thing that they have mastered is that third act triumphant moment. We've talked about what happens at the end of Face the Music, you know, but that that moment where they have to give the book report. Yeah. And it becomes a full on production. And I remember as a kid going, how did they pull this off? They just got everybody there. And I kept forgetting the time game that they had played to get to the police station. And I'm like, these jerks, after they did the report, went back in time for probably like weeks on end. If they had just studied this hard in school, they would have <laughs> passed with no problems. But they had to come up with like the world's most technically challenging, you know, uh, light show 
on a high school stage and nobody catch them so they could pull this off. It is phenomenal. But you get this wonderful moment where, and probably the thing that startles me the most to this day, and it shook me back then um, because I was like, nobody would ever do this, is Billy the Kid pulling on his gun and shooting a light with like an actual (laughs) bullet in a school. In a school. (laughs) And I'm like, how the hell everybody didn't just run out of the building? Um, They had to think it was fake. You have to, right? See, in my, in my, Whenever I watch it, I just always assume that they arrived with moments to spare and right. the magic just took over. Right. Like I, and then I, they I did never, it post. Yeah. No, I, I, to me, it, it never occurred to me that that wasn't all just like happening in real time off the cuff. That they just had it. some really good spotlight guys. Yeah. Up yeah. The they just, just ready to go. Like, <laughs> on this viewing, on this viewing, like Sean, I thought, I thought about the lighting and I thought, well, time travel. Right. See, I thought there was a lighting guy in the in the rig who was like, who like saw things unfolding. Was like, all right, I'm going to throw everything I got at this. Right. I've been waiting it. my entire life being a light man at a high school production, but this is my day. Like, this is my day. <laughs> and then they disappear in a in a in a in a magical uh, phone booth, and everybody's like, okay, <laughs> a plus. <laughs> Doug Henning was consulting on their show. Clearly, right. seriously, right? You know, hey, can we get like the cast of Hamilton in here and just have them? You know, we, we have time travel right so they can just dump in the background and stuff i mean like it, it, it is a full-on broadway production i mean they it, yeah, little stagecraft never hurt nobody no it's so phenomenal i mean they have pro- i mean seriously they have sigmund freud's chair they have the entire giant risk table all set up they have multiple uh, uh, uh sporting good utilities for genghis khan um you have all of uh, of just so many uh different little uh nuances that build up to that one moment where Nobody needs a single thing. Nobody needs any kind of 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 preamble. No, no, no extra sit. No, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. No extra stagehands. No extra lighting. We just need one spotlight and a man in a stovetop hat named Abraham Lincoln, and he just comes out and he gives about a minute ten on the nose, yeah, and crushes that entire movie. You know, with with party on dudes at the end. <laughs> Oh, fantastic. <laughs> like that is the distillation of that whole movie is Abraham Lincoln's speech. It is. I feel, I feel like judging by how many times each of us has said the word fantastic over the course of this podcast, that's the, that's the takeaway. Fantastic. It's true. Although I'm, I'm still, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, dig my feet in and say that it was all off the cuff. I don't know why, just because that was my first impression when I watched the movie as a kid. And yeah. I believe in movie magic. And I think they were just like, all right, guys, we got to get together. We got one shot at this right. and everything just fell into place. Mike, I'm not going to disrespect your headcanon here. I mean, I, I don't I don't want to either. But I, as a kid, I always thought they played the time game. And I always because yeah. for, for me, what I thought was interesting, going back to the Bill and Ted dynamic for a moment, because we had mentioned the fact that, you know, Ted would have these, you know, he was a puppy dog, but he had these moments of clarity. Like that was Ted through the whole movie. He was the one who came up with the time game. He's the one who said, you know, like, well, what if we just do it after the show, you know? And he's like, well, what if I just did this? And Bill was able to roll with it and play on it. But Ted was the one who would come up with these wacky ideas, like off the cuff. And he does it through all three movies. Like he's the one who kind of off the cuffs it. And he's the one who says, okay, if we've gone too far down the wrong path, he's like, maybe we should, you know, pump the brakes and maybe, you know, zig instead of zag. Um, And that's the brilliance of Ted is that Ted is, is like this. I don't want to call him an idiot savant because I don't think he's an idiot, but these savant moments where brilliance shines through the, the, the drollness of surfer dudenum, if that makes any sense, you know? 
Well, I can see yeah. that. Like, you know, maybe you got to wonder that maybe the whole surfer dude thing is like, is like the, just the first layer mm-hmm. and they are intelligent, special people who do save the world. Right. So, so they just needed the little nudge. It also made me the time, the time travel element made me also wonder if that, are they just like slaves to this continuous loop of time where they have to constantly be traveling through the loop to save the, the future in order to like, if it, it cause remember they, they come back and they meet themselves yes. again, you know, from the, and I just, it made me wonder is like, is this, they're just damned to, to traveling. No, I think most of that tracks, I feel like, like only during the movies do they seem, cause they don't, have continuous access to the time machines. So that's true. I actually yeah. also have an answer to this. Um, so in 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 I I I have unfortunately well not unfortunately I I study a lot of things. Uh, I was talking to my dad this morning uh, this morning and he asked me a question about something medical and I I flipped out the answer in about two seconds. He's like, "How do you know that?" I said, "I read things." And he's like, "I read things too, but I don't remember that." And I'm like, "Well, I do." Okay. And I actually got really interested in the idea of of basically how time travel would work and basically how quantum singularities kind occur and if you remember at the end of bill and ted face the music they talk about the fact how do we give every person on the planet throughout all of time music and let them know exactly how to play and kid cuddy by the way shout out to kid cuddy for just rolling up as himself in the third movie and just rocking it out completely apropos of nothing and also knowing everything about quantum physics that he needs to know and basically says you guys have access to a time machine it is a quantum singularity it is in a place of quantum flux that exists everywhere and nowhere at the same time which means that there are infinite versions of you from infinite possibilities that can take this burden from you chances are Bill and Ted are technically a slave to this loop, but it's not the same loop each time. There's a slightly different version of them every time they come through. So while every single version of Bill and Ted will always be going through some version of time travel, they only have to go through it once. So they only have to deliver one set of instruments to one person, and then another infinite multitude of them will give it to the guy to his left and to his right. So yes and no at the same time, which is a very quantum physics thing to answer with. (laughs) I accept. I accept your dissertation. That makes sense. Did I did I help at all? Yeah, no, it, that totally makes sense. Yeah, yeah. That's... So yeah. So the answer again, in short, is yes, they did, and they always will be, but only one time, and then they get to go back and do whatever they were normally doing. Nice. And that's the show, folks. I think I killed the conversation. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever, nerd. <laughs> I, I mean, seriously, I very rarely get a chance to break out my quantum physics, so that was a fun moment. Hey, so man. That was good. I'm glad. I'm glad that we could be a a a. a a repository for that uh, for that bit of information seriously all i need is a starfleet uniform right now and i could tell the captain we could go to warp 10 i'm telling you thank you for listening our website is gleamingthetube.net we're on facebook at gleaming the tube and our email is gleamingpod at gmail.com production assistance by liam gray music by kissing contest skateboarding is not a crime And by the way, if anybody knows the joke about Warp 10, you know that that was not, that's, we, nobody wants to turn to salamanders.